This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 68 of Chart Music. Here I am, Al Needham, with my dear, dear friend Simon Price. Hello again. And Neil Kulkarnet. Hello there. Chaps, we've already established that 1980 is seen as the Ken of the Aventis, if you will. Mm. And that's mainly down to the quality or otherwise of the number one singles of the year. Because let's not fanny about it. I've got a list of the number ones of 1980 in front of me right now. Right. And there's some cat shit in there. The <laughs> oldens are definitely having their say still. But I contend that there were some very decent number ones this year. And I'm thinking, well, would they have been number one in any other year but 1980? I mean, too much too young. Would that have been number one in 1979 or 1981? Start, would that have been number one in 1979 or 1981? This episode, no spoilers, has a fucking mint number one. And Mm. again, I can't see it being number one any other year but this one. Al, to answer your rhetorical question, or it's not even rhetorical, yeah, of course it would. Maybe not 79, but 81... Um, start by the jam would have been number one because they had they were having number ones in that year. The specials in 1981. Were number- I don't think so, Simon. The jam didn't have a number one in 1981. No. Absolute beginners and funeral pie. They were in the top three, but didn't but, get to number one. But what does that tell? I mean, isn't that just the quality of the songs? You know, because the jam mm-hmm. were hugely popular. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't really understand what what you're ascribing to, to the year that 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 the year has some kind of almost sort of anthropomorphic you know um, personality mm. that <laughs> is is sort of putting the jam at number one, and you're somehow claiming that if they'd released that that same record a year later, the jam fans wouldn't have gone out in their droves and and bought it. I don't get it. And also the specials. Specials had Ghost Town number one yes, in did, na- yes. 1981. So, you know, I, I, I don't I don't understand what you're getting at. I've got to be honest. I think I know what I was getting at. Oh, thank God. What, <laughs> I think what you're getting at is that 1980 is this kind of, how can I put it? It's this kind of gritty year, if, if you like, before mm. the kind of shiny, more electronic new pop takes over in 81 a bit more. So, Things like those records that you mentioned might not have gone all the way to number one in 1981 yeah, because they'd have been pushed out of the way. Yeah, I mean, you say the grannies are still involved. They are mm. still massively involved. So these things are huge oddities, whereas I think 81 onwards, well, 81, 82, definitely, the number of great number ones, I would imagine, goes up immensely. Hang on, Neil. Are you interpreting what Al said as meaning that uh, 1980 was so shit that these, <laughs> these that these records got to number one because there wasn't a lot else around to stop them getting to number one? Is that is that the point you're making? Perhaps, but more of a kind of you know we're sort of in between. I mean, we're not in between post punk and new pop, but things were a bit more up for grabs in 1980. Can I put it that way? Mm. That things haven't really been sort of you know the new romantic thing hasn't taken hold. That wave of bands hasn't quite cut through yet you know we've got to wait for 1981 for soft sell haven't we so Mm. 
you know, um, that kind of side of things hasn't taken over. And there's this just sort of, not no man's land, but there's this middle, not middle ground either. But there's this interesting period where the grittiness of the times is percolating slightly into the charts in perhaps a way that it doesn't in 81, where things get a little bit more determinedly escapist. Well, that's my all save. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of look at 1980 as like a dip between two peaks on a mountain range. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to climb really high to this peak. When you get there, there's this unexpected dip, maybe a volcanic one, you know, mm. but then it's back up again on the other side. Yeah. But it's but but still, even the dip is pretty high. Yeah. I mean, we, we can go through the awful number ones, Cowed of the County, uh, What's Another Year, mm. Crying, mm. Uh, stuff like that. Even Feels Like I'm in Love, like Total Mum Disco. Yes. Woman in Love by Barbara Streisand. Ugh. Okay, it's, it's kind of a classy record, but mm. yeah, it's not for me. And uh, then the end of the year, of course, everything's overshadowed by the death of John Lennon. Yes. You've got yeah. Just Like Starting Over. Yeah, yeah. And then St. Winifred School Choir. And it just drags over into the early part of 81. You've got yes. John Lennon, John Lennon. Um, then you've got Shut Up Your Face. Then you've got Roxy Music <laughs> doing a John Lennon cover. Yeah. And then you've got Shaking Stevens and it's Buck's Fist. And it's only, it, it's actually, you, you get to May 1981 before yeah. you get a really fucking decent number one, which is Stand and Deliver by Adam right. Yance. Yeah. So that's a long old period of 81 as well, which is pretty mm. bollocks. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of number ones, at least. Well, there we go. We could carry on talking about it or we could just do it which is talking about it, really. So, oh, fucking hell. Can I, can I just pick something else up? Right. Please do. Well, Neil was t- telling us about the Birmingham piss troll. Yes. Right? And it just raises more questions than answers. I'm sorry, I've got to bring this up again. Because and the more I find out, the less I know. <laughs> it's been really preying on my mind because, mm-hmm. right, so just sort of recap, you're saying that uh, it, it's, it's a sort of well-known thing uh, among Brummies that if you go for a piss in the canal late at night, some bloke swims up and opens his gob and tries to get you to piss in the I never mouth. said open his gob you dragged me saying that, I didn't say that um, He doesn't open his gob he well, does not open right, his go gob, on, go on. He just, no, and crucially I should have clarified one other thing it's not just pissing in a canal you've got to piss over this bridge, this particular bridge Right. Um, yeah, and he, he, he kind of comes up out of the water, lets you piss he all over him. No, 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 sorry Neil, he does not come out, there is no, he's not <laughs> <laughs> I'm reporting a legend right i wasn't there this is i'm I'm interested in the status of this is it one of these things where it's it's a real person that everyone knows about or is it some kind of absolute fanciful bullshit because in my mind i'm imagining like you know bobby ewing in the man from atlantis uh, (laughs) patrick duffy or or like you know kevin costner in Waterworld. Mm. you know because in order to get there in time if there's a pissing incident happening how often uh can it possibly happen that yim yams are getting their cocks out and slinging him over the edge of the bridge you tell me but like he'd have to be really yeah. fucking quick he'd have to be the torpedo to yeah, get but there, he's, there yeah. he's there isn't he he, he stays under the bridge and, 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 and what he's got of... water he's, he's sort of like um, just sort of uh, kicking about he's sort of like treading water waiting waiting for it to happen <laughs> waiting for the, for, the, for the golden shower well we need more clarity from our yim yam brethren about this but yeah he, he, oh, the, the point is most of the like, most of the descriptions I've read because I also said that he wades away in the water um, he actually, most of the descriptions I've read, he scuttles away. Scuttles so, now? He's a crab, is he? What the fuck? <laughs> Which suggests to me that perhaps, you know, he, he gets in the water for the piss, and then, you know, for, for the piss dream, and then, he, you know, he, he gets himself up on the canal bank and scuttles away into the dark oh shadows of, mm. uh, of Yardley or wherever. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it sounds like absolute bullshit to me, but I think if any of our Brummie <laughs> listeners can, you know, fill us in, then, you mm. know, please get in touch. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I don't think I can, Simon. It's been on my mind, that's all. <laughs> all right, then, pop craze youngsters. It's time to get stuck into this episode of Top of the Pops. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Well, hello there. Good evening and welcome to Top of the Pops. And we start with the charts and Mr. Leon Hayward. It's 20 minutes past seven on Thursday, May the 1st, 1980, and Top of the Pops is cruising through its 16th year as BBC One's flagship music show, and its eighth year under the stewardship of Robin Nash, the old-school BBC lifer who looked a bit like a posh Dickie Davis. (laughs) Under his policy of changing absolutely fuck-all since he took over in 1973, Top of the Pops is still pulling down upwards of six... 16 million viewers a week in 1980, but changes are afoot. Nash, who has been plate-spinning like a bastard throughout the 70s as the producer of The Basil Brush Show, Cracker Jack and The Generation Game, was also promoted up to BBC Head of Variety in 1978, and something clearly has to give. We don't know it yet, pop craze youngsters, but this is the beginning of the end of his reign as the executive producer of Top of the Pops, and it's going to end sooner than anyone expected. Panel, as seasoned observers of Top of the Pops from 1973 to 1980 as we are, we can safely say that apart from a rotating cast of acts, presenters and crumpety dancers, nothing has broke and no one has fixed it. So do you think that Top of the Pops could have carried on how it is now? all the way through the 80s and beyond. I think it would have started looking increasingly ridiculous. Mm. It, it is that kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But but Robin Nash doesn't quite want to ever give the charts over to the young. He still mm. wants to keep a sizable part of the show uh, to keep old folks happy. He's a light entertainment man, isn't he? This is it. And like you say, give or take the change in the acts. The, I mean, this particular episode, I mean, it could have been broadcast back in 73 when he started. There's very little difference. Mm. The soon coming... Strike is heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, episodes of Are You, Has Anyone Seen My Cunt Served? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a replacement, just seems, just seems scheduled just to enrage us pop fans. Mm. A, a change is needed, you know, a wiping clean of the slate. The vibe becomes completely different after he's gone. Mm. You know, we get these ideas with changes of the calendar that, you, you know, a new decade needs a new vibe. I mean, I'm not sure that's particularly why, but yeah. I think it would have started looking increasingly ridiculous and also just not up to the job of reflecting how exciting pop becomes, mm. you know, uh, particularly in the early 80s. It's one of those counterfactual things that, you know, we'll, we'll never know, but it's it's fun to debate um, mm. whether things would have stayed the same had we not entered the age of Yellow Hurl. Yeah. I don't know. I felt, just watching this episode, that there were a few little, not radical changes, but um, a few sort of uh, nice little touches of production that mm. seemed like something that wouldn't have happened 10 years earlier than that. Mm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll mention them as, as we go along, but, you know, I, I wonder if possibly 
had Nash stuck around, he he might have made the show uh, evolve rather than revolve. Let's say that. In a forthcoming issue of Smash Hits, three pages were given over to the state of music TV in 1980, which is a common bit of space filler um, throughout the years. Mm -hmm. This one was written by our old friend Tony Parsons. (laughs) According to him, the old grey whistle test is, quote, as indispensable to Smash Hits readers as a moth eaten pair of stars and stripes loom pants with presenter Annie Nightingale resembling the runner-up in a glamorous grandmother's contest. Oh, fuck off. Get It Together has no black people on it, features 10th-rate bands who haven't realised yet that this is going to be the highlight of their careers, and Roy North is as weird as Gary Newman wants to be, but isn't. The Kenny Everett video show is pitiful and irritating and hot gossip a castigator for not having any white men or black women in them. Swap Shop is okay. Tiz Was is amateurish offensive refuse and the Saturday Banana with Bill Oddie was the best kid show ever. Chinny wreck on. While the cast of Oh Boy should, quote, have their blue suede feet nailed to the floor and be made to watch Grease 50 times. But what did he have to say about our favourite Thursday evening fizzy pop treat? Well, he said... Top of the Pops is by far the best music programme on TV because it is content to see its role as a reflection of the charts and nothing more. And so, Top of the Pops works well right now because the charts are in a remarkably healthy state at the moment, healthier than they have been for years. Every fad and fashion of the last 10 years soaked up, assimilated, restyled into something fresh, flash and fun. I know there's rubbish around like Lena Martel, Pink Floyd and Elvis Costello, but a few one-hit wonders can't spoil it for us, can they? God knows the concoction of youth, dance and music frequently jar, grate and grind with each other on top of the pops, but still, nobody does it better, not in this country. Pains me to say it, but he's right. Yeah, I mean, he makes a few valid points there, actually. Mm. But the fact that it's Tony Parsons just pisses (laughs) me off. But yeah, 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 he he is kind of on the money with quite a lot of that. But uh, I would say that, you know, the fresh, flash and exciting thing, that just happens much more in the Yellow Hurl era, I would say, than it does with Nash. Mm. The the vibe of the show with Hurl later is completely different. It feels more 80s instantly because more of the crowd are involved. And, 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 you know, it couldn't be held in this kind of sepia holding pattern it has had for so long. It had to change. However, unbeknownst to the pop-crazed youngsters, or at least the ones not scouring page two in the newspapers for updates on industrial disputes, there's an elephant in the room. It's been there for months, and it's wearing a bow tie and brandishing a double bass with its trunk. In November of 1979, the still-new Thatcher government imposed a television licence fee of £34 a year, which was less than the £41 the BBC were asking for in order to support its existing services and plants. So on February the 28th of this year, the BBC announced their response. £130 million worth of cuts to its budget for the next two years, which included 1,500 staff members being made redundant, the axing of the Radio 2 soap opera Wagoner's Walk, and the disbanding of five of the 11 orchestras run by the Beeb. 
including the Scottish and Northern Ireland Symphony Orchestras, the Northern Radio Orchestra, the Midland Radio Orchestra and the London Studio Players. One month ago from this date, the Musicians' Union, which got into rows with Top of the Pops the minute it started broadcasting and eventually forced the BBC into making their acts mime in 1965, gave their response when they ordered their 41,000-strong membership not to play one note for the BBC until it reinstated the five orchestras by the date of May the 1st. This very day. That deadline has come and gone without incident, but the threat is still looming, and it casts a shadow over the forthcoming tapings of the Lena Zavaroni show, the Valdunica music show, the old grey whistle test, and <gasps> Top of the Pops. So, chaps, no music press. And now the possibility of no top of the pops. It's, it's like living in this unwiped arse of a century, isn't it? What a hellscape. <laughs> I chose a good time to be locked away in a preparatory school, let's say that. <laughs> the great pop famine of 1980 is is upon us. Yeah, and the, and the top of the pops like, was particularly harsh on us young guns. You know, mm. we're not going to stay up and watch Old Grey Whistle Test or any of that. No. This was our half hour and it was gone. But for now, your host is Richard Anthony Crispian Francis <laughs> Prue Hope Weston, otherwise known as Tommy Vance, who is 18 months into his stint on the Friday Rock Show on Radio 1 on Friday evenings, with Money and Trespass in session tomorrow night, and is currently holding down Rock on Saturday in the late afternoon, with Sad Cafe Live this week. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you, Simon? I love Sad Cafe. Bring it on. Yeah. Mm. And he is making his Top of the Pops debut tonight. Oh, Having found himself as a de facto gatekeeper for a whole new movement, the new wave of British heavy metal, his stock has obviously risen in the BBC, and Robin Nash has called him up for his debut appearance on Top of the Pops, meaning he's making his first appearance as a television presenter since the last episode of Disco 2 in 1970. Tommy Vance, come on down. I love Tommy. Um, Saxon's Denim and Leather is perhaps the greatest tribute song to being a metalhead ever. Um, And one of the key lines in it is, did you listen to the radio every Friday night? Which just shows the Mm. rock show's huge importance. Mm. But what's funny about Vance is that famously, in kind of metal circles, if you like, he's a guy who's got no records in his house. really yeah absolutely the thing is with the Friday Rock Show because the production team behind the show were so on it especially in the Wobberham the Friday Rock Show became something you tape because you know they'd get sessions that you wouldn't get anywhere else Mm, Um, you know bands like Merciful Fate and Diamond Head I mean those sessions are amazing and of course the time slot of the Rock Show was really crucial Friday night the night when you know normal functioning people are out but the geeks and the freaks and the weirdos who were kind of into the Wobberham probably weren't out. <laughs> I love Tommy Vance, mainly because he was able, I mean, in a sense, to con us into thinking he had a genuine fondness for heavy metal. I don't think Tommy Vance is that fussed about music. He loves radio. Mm. But he, he repositioned the rock show in as much as, you know, with Alan Freeman, you kind of got the feeling that essentially he was a prog classical head who mm. could be forced to play some metal. 
Whereas whenever Tommy Vance was in the chat, you really did get very little prog and a hell of a lot of metal, especially mm. new bands, especially in the Wobbaham alongside the big names. And he started doing stuff that, I don't know, you know later on in the 80s that there comes that period where old BBC sessions start getting heard again, mm. um, like Jimi Hendrix sessions and stuff like that. In the early 80s, this stuff was locked away and, and unheard. And when he mm. dipped back into Metal's past, he dug into archives that kind of nobody else had. Right. You know, so it was certainly pre the period where Sessions got repackaged. So hearing original Sessions for like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, you know, that was amazing. Oh, yeah. And, it, it, and it's testament to how respected Tommy Vance was in the scene that he was able to get, you know, Samson and Saxon and all these other bands to do his jingles and stuff. Mm. Um, he wasn't the only conduit in the Wobbaham. I mean, it got on the airwaves in various ways. Peely played a lot. You know, Alan Freeman played... Even Andy Peebles played the Odd Maiden track. Yeah. But it was... But the, the crucial thing is with Vance, it didn't matter whether he was into the music or not, he put it over the best. You know, it, that's crucial. Uh, his voice is just... You know, it's just a really cool voice yeah. for, for, for playing rock music. But, you know, the credit really for the Friday Rock Show needs to go to the producer, I think, Tony Wilson, who's very in touch with within the Wobham scene. Vance just had the coolest voice to put it across. But it did become a weekly you know, tapable event. Mm. It, it defined, if you're a metal fan, what you buy, and it defines your whole week. And he'd get fucking amazing stuff. I remember him getting, like, acetates from Metallica, you know, sent over by Metallica. Mm. To have him on top of the pops is huge. And we shouldn't be under any illusions that the British heavy metal bands, or the new wave British heavy metal bands, rather. For them, top of the pops was not just some, something to smirk about or joke about. These are guys who basically, they had their lives changed by glam rock. You know, when you dig into these people, Def mm. Leppard, Maiden, etc., they're massive glam rock fans in the early 70s. And Top of the Pops is a huge show for them. It's a big moment for them. Yeah. Crucially, because Tommy's got this wide experience with music, if you like, when he steps into pop, when he does the... You know, when Peely does Top of the Pops, he kind of takes the piss. Mm. When Tommy Vance steps into pop, his experience means he never looks down on it. Yes. So, uh, you know, I always love Tommy, uh, not only in the Friday Rock Show, but yeah, he's always a good TOTP presenter as well, I think. I mean, this is the fourth episode we've done that features a debut performance by a Radio 1 DJ. Simon Parkin and Andy Peebles had an absolute mare while mm. Peter Powell hit the ground haying. <laughs> and it won't surprise or spoiler anything if I say that Vance gets up to speed right from the off, almost as if he's been doing this shit all the way through the 70s. Well, yeah. I mean, dig into Tommy Vance's life. I mean, he, he bought singles out in the 60s, Stones covers and stuff. He's been heavily immersed in presenting and radio and all of that for a long, long time before he actually steps into the TOTP chair. Mm. And he's a consummate professional. Mm. He's a sl not a slick, but he's as, in a weird way, comforting as Kid Jensen. He's just on it. Yeah. Simon, would you have known who Tommy Vance was when he popped up on Top of the Pops if you'd have seen this episode? No, I don't think I would because he was no. very much, I mean, he was TV on the radio, wasn't he? He was, a, he was the, the radio yeah, guy and yeah, I wasn't yeah, up on a yeah. Friday night listening to heavy metal because I was out partying at the age of 
twelve. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, or, or should we call him rock expert Tommy Vance? But the thing is, this is really interesting because he's not a rock expert, is he? From what from what Neil's no. saying, that I didn't realise that. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we we talked about Tommy Vance in Chart Music Thirty One, and uh, I, I remember yes. I, I said I liked him for saying that the greatest moment of his life was going on stage at Donington and the entire crowd mm. chanting "Tommy is a wanker," which I think sp- speaks well of him. <laughs> and we also had a good laugh at his brass eye appearance. And uh, when we did a Q and A, I named him as one of the TOTP presenters I most like to have a pint of foaming nut brown ale with. And um, yes. and I stand by that. You know, the thing with Tommy Vance yeah. is he is a sleazy old dinosaur, right? The king of the orgies. Oh bloody hell! Well, um, you can't help liking him because he didn't, as far as we know, sexually assault anyone, which is a very low bar no. for likability, isn't it? But you know, here we are. Mm. Um, mm. He did plenty of sexism, of course. Um, <laughs> Michael Han wrote a piece about Tommy in The Guardian a while ago uh, when right. he mentioned a Top of the Pops from October 1980 in which Tommy said to a red leather-clad Susie Quattro, I like you in that gear, um, to which Susie muttered, weird guy. <laughs> and then he, he tried he tried to buy Therese Bazaar from Dollar off David Van Day, like she was his property. <laughs> yes. He goes, how much? Yes, uh, he and, uh, I mean, that is, it's pretty grim. Mm. David Van Day would have fucking sold her as oh, well. Oh, he would. He could have done. He'd have sold her with some fried onion and ketchup on top, definitely. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's easy for men like us to laugh for that kind of sexism from a position of male privilege. But it is hilarious at four decades distance in a sort of real life partridge way, because he is quite partridge. Mm. Also, I, I reckon he'd have been good value for a pint, because as Neil was sort of alluding to, he had one of those mad lives that the DJs of his generation all seem to have, you know, working on pirate ships and going to work yeah. in America and all that. Mm. For start, yeah. there's that whole thing where Tommy Vance isn't his real name, as as you mentioned. Yes. I'm sure we dealt with this before, but, you know, he had more names than Boris Johnson. Um, it's like, mm. um, you know, <laughs> supposedly the story is he turned up at KOL in Seattle in 1964 and he was stepping yes. in for another presenter who was called Tommy Vance, who pulled out yeah. the last minute and the jingles had already been recorded. So Richard mm. uh, said he'd become Tommy and he said, for that kind of money, you can call me what you like, mate. <laughs> and he only ended up uh, back in the UK to to dodge the draft of the Vietnam War and and of course yeah. he's, he's Ricky Storm Ricky Storm what a name fucking hell in, in <laughs> Slade in Flame he should have taken that name and run with it I reckon yes and yeah. here we see him um, 1980 the new wave era he looks ridiculous in the new wave era but to be fair <laughs> most presenters of Top of the Pops looked ridiculous in the new wave era yes. his hair literally looks like a bell here and mm. he's, he's wearing the, the, the Foster Grant glasses and, and white yes. Blues yeah. on wind cheater of a 60 year old divorced nan on a cruise holiday. Um, <laughs> but he is in his element for once on this episode for musical reasons, which we'll come to later, yeah. I guess. How would Tommy Vance have coped in the Vietnam War? <laughs> do you think? What do you think? <laughs> Maybe he'd have been the sort of Robin Williams character, but with a much deeper voice. Yeah. You know? Yes. Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. He's also been inducted into Kenny Everett's worst records of all time show on Capital Radio last month, getting to number 17 with his cover of Summertime. He's in very illustrious company there because here 
Here Today, Gone Tomorrow by Tony Blackburn's at number 20. Okay. Just Like That by David Hamilton's at number 9. And of course at number 1 is Dance With Me by Reginald Bose and Kay. <laughs> and later this year, he's going to deploy every erg of his expertise when he appears on an episode of Metal Mickey as a DJ, <laughs> when the robot overlord of Saturday Tea Time launches a music career but gets ripped off by his manager, who's played by James Smiler, who went on to be the plastic surgeon in Return to Eden and the nice lawyer in Prisoner Soul Blockade. So yeah, it's all happening for Tommy right now. Yeah. But I like that about him. It's not that so much that he gives anything a go, but he'll give anything paid a go. <laughs> yes. That's completely different to the kind of greasy careerism of somebody like Edmonds. Mm. I, th- I think Tommy Vance, he's got no overinflated ideas about himself. And he will work for food, basically, <laughs> um, which means him cropping upon all of this stuff. But he's been doing this. Yeah, he, he's been picking up work here and there for a good 20 years. So yeah. I, I like that kind of attitude. Yeah, I kind of respect that as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rather than the kind of pomposity that you get from other TOTP presenters. Do you time. know the other sitcom that he appeared in as a DJ? No. The Desperate Hours, the Steptoe and Son episode with Leonard Rossiter. Fucking hell. Oh. No. Wow. Yes. So uh, he, he was a versatile actor then. He played yes. <laughs> a DJ, a DJ and a DJ. Yeah. We're hit with the sight of our host in a silvery white bomber jacket with red trim that makes him look well chegular, <laughs> leaning on a rail, flanked by a backlit sign over his shoulder that looks like a carving of a pumpkin and appears to read... Tommy Vons. Yeah, someone's <laughs> fucked up on that end, haven't they? After an introduction which yields nothing in the way of nonsense, we're lobbed into the top 30 rundown and Don't Push It, Don't Force It by Leon Haywood. Born in Houston in 1942, Otha Leon Haywood learned to play piano at the age of three, played in a local band in his teens, was a regular member of Guitar Slim's band and moved to Los Angeles at the age of 18, where he linked up with the saxophonist Big Jay McNeely, played in assorted session bands, put out a solo single and ended up playing keyboards in Sam Cooke's band. When Cook died in late 1964, Haywood recommenced his solo career, passing through several regional labels before signing to Atlantic in the late 60s. But it wasn't until the mid-70s that he finally scored a major hit when I Wanna Do Something Freaky To You got to number 15 on the Billboard chart. This single... The follow-up to Parte, which failed to chart here like all his previous releases, got to number two in the American R&B chart and number 49 on the Billboard chart. And when it came out here in the middle of March, it entered the chart at number 56, then soared to number 35. A week later, when it moved up another five places to number 30, it was used as a playout music on top of the pops, and a week later, it was emoted to by Legs and Co. After it was played over the chart rundown a fortnight ago, it moved up two places to number 12, and this week, even though it hasn't moved, it's been wheeled out as the rundown music again for its fourth go-around on top of the pops. Whoa, four times. 
and we still haven't seen the poor son. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, that means we had no idea what he looked like. He could have been young, he could have been old. And mm. yeah. the thing with so many disco acts and funk acts from this era is how often you find out that they'd actually be making music since the 50s, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. They were there at the very birth of soul. Mm. But in terms of chart recognition, they had a very slow burn. Um, we were talking earlier about live albums, right? Um, yeah. Generally, I'm not a fan, but there are exceptions. One of them is Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963. which oh, yes. is extraordinary, mm. captivating performance, if anyone's not heard it. Mm. Uh, now, sadly, um, and, you know, because it'd be really neat if Leon Hayward was on that record. He did not play mm. on, on the album. Uh. But, you know, as you say, he was in Sam Cooke's backing band. And the fact that Sam Cooke died in 1964 tells you how long Leon Hayward had already been around by the time we'd heard of him in the UK. Mm. I would say we didn't really hear of him in the UK in the 70s, unless you were a real soul aficionado. Because oh, yeah. you mentioned I want to do something freaky to you. Um, yes. That was a hit in America, um, and of course later sampled by Dr. Dre on nothing but a G thing. Oh, imagine pants people dancing to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Um, but by the time "Don't Push It, Don't Force It" came out, his KY Jelly classic, um, he was thirty-eight. He was his pegging anthem. Yeah. <laughs> He was 38 by the time this comes out. But because we haven't seen him yet on Top of the Pops, you, you could have told me he was 21 and I'd have believed it yeah. until, yeah, yeah, yeah. until I researched it for chart music. And that's the thing with disco. Disco is a very forgiving um, genre, um, age-wise. Mm. Um, if you had yeah. the pipes and you had the chops, you were allowed to be a disco star, however yes. old you were, pretty much. I mean, it's a nice story, Haywards, because it, it's it's like the lyrics to Do You Know The Way To San Jose or something. You know, mm. it, it's kind of, LA is a great big freeway, put 100 down. He goes there, aged 18, with the car wash job and all the rest of it. And he gets mistreated, really, by an awful lot of record companies until he has that hit with, I want to do something freaker with you. Pete, I remember reading an interview with with Pete Jones, who was one of Grandmaster Flash's big DJ inspirations. And he spoke in interviews about how much Leon Haywood he would play, play an awful lot. Um, uh, It was just really suitable Mm. for those kind of parties. Um, I I think this is a great record, by the way. I mean, Mm. it's been sampled a lot, I suspect but maybe in those pre-sample clearance days that don't show up on who's sampled because there's so many textures here that that I've heard. Um, This might be, well, this is his last hit, age 38, like Simon said, but he actually then, I mean, there's a kind of happy ending because he then settles into a kind of happy writing production career, including writing She's a Bad Mama Jammer in 81 and dies peacefully... Yeah, absolutely. And dies peacefully in his sleep in 2016. So a, a, a nice sort of rags to riches tale. It's a good record, though, this. Perfect for, for the chart rundown. Yes. Um, I would say the song shares the same underlying riff as You Can Do It by Al Hudson and Partners yes. from 1979. Yes, it really does. It's two notes very close together, semitone interval. And you could argue that that is just a staple trope of funk or R&B. But it does sound like a blatant rip-off to me. But maybe he was doomed to a life of imitation in a way. Um, as you mentioned, his real name was Other Leon Hayward, mm. as if his parents were setting him up for a life of underachieving and being overshadowed. He, he's, <laughs> he's not even the main person with his name. He's not the mm. New Zealand field hockey player he's the other Leon Hayward (laughs) but self-deprecation was hardwired into him right the follow-up to this single was if you're looking for a night of fun look past Mm. me I'm not the one which you know it might have been intended to signify his credentials as you know long-term husband material but it basically screams I'm a crap shag you know and and also Mm. it has the same two note interval by the way it's very much his dance the kung fu Mm. so I would say 
Don't Push It, Don't Force It is not an outstanding example of its genre, but it's pretty good. And if it came out now, out of the blue, and it was by Bruno Mars or The Weeknd or Anderson Park or whoever, we'd be mm. falling over ourselves to hail it oh, as, yeah. as the return of yeah, the yeah. groove or something. In 1980, yes. we, we were spoiled for choice. And, yes, and, uh, you know, as, as Neil said, you know, uh, he, he, did sort of contribute his fair share because she's a bad mama jammer. She's built, she's stacked by Carl Carlton. The masophiliac anthem is an absolute yes. banger. So, <laughs> yeah, fair play. Imagine Legs and Co dancing to that. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this song is, is very post disco and also a very anonymous artist to a British audience. So, there's only three places this is going on top of the pops mm. at the end of some shots of the lights, in the middle over some shots of Legs and Co's arses, or here over some pictures of some scowly music yeah. shall we shall we do the chart page, oh yes chaps? what what did we find this week i'm never keen on the chart rundown can i just say being right at the top of the show no um and no. it immediately deflates any suspense or momentum the show yeah. might have been able to drum up through its running time um the, the photos i picked out if you don't mind me going first um Bad Manners, there's uh, such an old photo of Bad Manners that Buster Bloodvessel had hair. What the fuck? Bad Manners in a photo that's been so badly tinted that they look like they're floating in a tank of formaldehyde (laughs) in an art space. Johnny Logan looks weirdly terrifying, like he's being played by Javier Bardem circa No No Country for Old Men, you know. I thought Bobby Thurston was even more terrifying, a face from a Halloween mask, you know. Mm. I know there's a bit of a Rosa Parks situation with UB40, all the black members being forced to yes. stand at the back. Mm. I thought it was a bit yes. odd. But the one that really stood out for me, I don't know if, <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll agree with me here, Sky. Sky yes. look an absolute oh, God, fucking yeah. state. They look like the Venn. Yes, they do. They look like the Venn diagram intersection of Nambler and Camera. <laughs> Cambler. <laughs> I've got them as um, looking like they've been queuing outside W. H. Smith's all night to be the first to buy a Sinclair ZX8. <laughs> you said Scowlyow. I don't reckon there's that many scowly shots. Well, the, bo- well, there's the body snatches for me. Uh, the yeah, body snatches who... look really fucking oh, pissed yeah. off. They're like they've all come round your ass and standing in your fucking doorway waiting to have it out with you. Oh yeah, that's committed non-smiling. B.A. Cunterson is pointing and shouting as if he's recreating the cover of Tell Us the Truth by Sham Sixty Nine. <laughs> Sad Cafe being hugged by a giant Tommy Boyd lookalike. Someone in the band is fucking huge. Sad Cafe revealing their new bassist, Robert Wadlow. Straight from the Guinness Book of Records. Indeed. All the picks have been wedged into a box that's been placed at top right, with the names and numbers flaring off into the distance, Mm. like when you point a camcorder at the teller. Which is a bit disorientating, really. It's not the kind of thing you want on Thursday tea time. And it does feel very 70s, doesn't it? You're right, so that yeah, yeah. It really does. Now, chaps, yeah. we've discussed in the preamble the tribalism of the pop craze youth around about this time, which was borne out every time I went to one of the many youth clubs I patronised. Um, the older kids were almost exclusively punks or punk adjacent. There were loads of plastic mods like me. There was a load of rude boys in Arrington's. But there was also a smattering of youths who were into what we now call post-disco. And seeing as there wasn't much in the way of Leon Haywood and Tom Brown badges or patches or comb holders at Pendulum Records. Their only way of indicating their fealty to the groove was by wearing what was known on our estate as a funky belt. Does that ring any bells with you? No. Funky belt? Not at right, all. Right, it's one of them overlong belts 
usually red, where the the end used to hang down like a, a flat fabricy cock. <laughs> and they were known as funky belts round our way because everyone who's into funk wore them. Right. And I tried to discover the proper term for them belts on Google, but yeah. I typed in belt with hanging end, and mm. Google directed me to the phone number of the Samaritan. So, <laughs> oh my god! So here's a question for the pop creations: What did you call a funky belt in 1980? And was it just a Nottingham thing? Fucking yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Anyway, I had a mate, uh, Stephen Burbage, rest in peace, and he was well into this sort of stuff. And every time it came on at the youth clubs, I would always make a point of saying words to the effect of, woohoo, funky, and waving my hand in front of my nose to denote that there was a foul whiff. And he would always make a point of panning me. So I eventually stopped doing that. And I also eventually realised that this sort of music kind of won out in the early 80s in the end, didn't it? Of all the music we're going to hear on this episode, episode of Top of the Pops. It's stuff like this that's going to percolate and permeate the rest of the 80s a bit more than the other stuff, don't That's you think? true, it's true, and it seemed to sort of um, be um, to one side of or float above tribalism, um, mm. because nobody in my school was, was listening to this. They certainly weren't dressing like that. Mm. There were no mm. funky belts uh, in Barry, no. I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously somebody was buying these records. I think I always assumed it was older brothers and older sisters. It was people yes. in their late teens, early 20s, who were actually of the age to be going out to nightclubs. Whereas, mm. you know, it, it didn't have much currency in the in the playground. Mm. We all know now with hindsight, we've all seen documentaries about that kind of Essex soul scene. Yes, which we'll come to later. So we know that there was a subculture Culture, but it didn't percolate down to to sort of my my generation in school. I don't know about you. Mm. Yeah, the textures you hear here, it's it's kind of pre-electro, and it's it's quite nicely tooled. So these are the sounds that will crop up as the decade goes on a lot more than perhaps some of the other things we're going to hear. So a week later, don't push it, don't force it. Dropped seven places to number nineteen. The follow-up. If you're looking for a night of fun, look past me, I'm not the one, failed to chart, and he never pushed or forced anything else into the UK chart again. (laughs) A year later, he wrote and produced She's a Bad Mama Jammer, She's Built, She's Stacked for Carl Colton, which got to number 34 in August of 1981, and he spent the rest of the decade splitting his time between diminishing returns on his solo career and setting up his own blues label, and yes, he died in 2016 at the age of the style of Top of the Pops in the mid-80s, the number one act fades out and we're immediately plunged into the first band with no introduction, so I'll give them one. It's This World of Water by New Music. 
Formed in Wimbledon in 1977, New Music were a group consisting of Nick Straker, who had been an original member of the reggae band Matumbi in the early 70s, and a backing musician for Limmy out of family cooking when he went solo, Tony Mansfield, who was originally Limmy's roadie, who formed a musical partnership with Straker, and Clive Gates, who was in a prog band with Mansfield in the early 70s. In 1979, the group gained a record deal with GTO, but lost Straker, who formed his own band, which Mansfield chipped in with every now and then. Their debut single, Straight Lines, entered the chart at number 70 in October of 1979, and two weeks later, while it was bobbing around at number 61, they were gifted an appearance on Top of the Pops, but it only ended up at number 53. The follow-up... Living by Numbers fared much better thanks to loads of Radio 1 airplay and got to number 13 in February of this year. This single, the third cut from their debut LP from A to B, which came out today, entered the chart at number 59 and this week it soared 31 places to number 38 and here they are in the studio and chaps, finally, new music, enter the hallowed portals of chart music. Welcome in, lads. Indeed, indeed. I've been listening to that album from A to B Mm. um, quite a lot recently in preparation for this. Good. I remember once reading an interview with Saint Etienne or Simon Reynolds, where Reynolds asked them, you know, uh, what, what kind of things they were listening to that are maybe a bit off the beaten track, and they mentioned from A to B by New Music. Mm. Reynolds thought they were joking. Mm. He thought it was so obviously bad and uh, and you know just beyond the pale that they were just being uh, arch and being kitsch, mm. but they were really sincere about it. And it is a really good album. Yeah, what I loved about New Music was that they sounded so optimistic about the future. Mm. You mentioned Straight Lines. It's the opening track on the album, and it has a a verse that goes, It's part of the service that carries you on ahead. There's only the one way. The ticket is on your head. With robot precision, we're going to be doing just fine. So here we are, here we go, moving in one straight line. Mm. right? And you know how you're always expecting a twist with anything that depicts the future? You know, a dark dystopian Mm. undercurrent, which somehow is meant to make it more valid. There's only the very slightest traces of that with new music. And I think if you choose to listen to it in a certain way, there's none of that. Mm. There's another track called Science that goes... And you generate and you radiate solutions everywhere. It's also scientific, which is almost craft work like. Mm. But even craft work, you know, things like uh, radioactivity, it's kind of sinister. I don't think you really get that with new music. No. Even Living by Numbers, you know, breakthrough hit, all about humanity being classified and digitized and enumerated. Mm. Sounds really cheerful about it, I think. Yes. And even this song, This World of Water about rising sea levels is, mm. you know, strangely optimistic. Uh, you can drown, but you still survive. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm living in a world of water myself at the moment, right? <laughs> because uh, the, the rubber seal on our French windows is fucked. Oh, so every no. time it rains, yeah, every time it rains, the back of the living room carpet gets flooded. No. But um, I, I still love it as I loved it then. Um, it just kind of sparkles. Even those um, pinky and perky backing vocals, which yes. ought to be annoying, you know, uh, you can swim to the other. Side, that thing <laughs> somehow adds to it yeah the single after this sanctuary is a work of actual genius mm. should have been a number one instead it got to number 31 yeah and and i can only put that down to the abrupt ending 
which they put on it, which makes disc jockeys look like twats. It's the twat maker. <laughs> yeah. So uh, radio stations were were reluctant to play it. And also, um, I suppose my theory for why they never became really massive, with the best will in the world, and with the proviso that I realise people who are no oil paintings themselves <laughs> shouldn't throw stones in glass houses. There's a reason why new music never became pop pinups and, say, Depeche Mode did. Mm. They look like boffins in their white lab coats. I think yeah. boffins is the word. And the main man, Tony Mansfield, looks like Russell Grant, who's been on a diet that has semi-worked. <laughs> he doesn't look like a pop star because he isn't one. He's 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 a producer. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's funny that you, you you mentioned the optimism of the music. I mean, at the time, they're very much portrayed as quite doomy new music, um, mm. you know, by the critics. But this is it. It, it. It's the thing. I mean, you know us music critics, and I'm fairly sure I speak for Pricey here too. We love having theories about pop, about what works and what doesn't. Mm. But of, of course, pop is far too variegated a form to ever slot neatly into those theories. And usually the exceptions are so numerous that they disprove the rule. With new music, they kind of fall into one of my theories. Well, it's not my theory necessarily. I have a rule that, you know, far too much pop is left to fucking musicians. Mm. In my ever insatiable hunger for the hand that feeds, I am waiting to stop teaching one day so that I can write the piece about the major malfunction of music teaching in this country, that it's based around musicians. And... You know, this is why we get the fucking Alt-Js and the Folds and all of these horrifically competent bands mm. who always seem to emerge from educational systems around music, those places that make the criminal sort of tactical error of putting musicians in touch with other musicians mm. without introducing any kind of risk or non-musical impulse into things. Mm. Now, this is a problem that's picked up by contemporary reviews of new music at the time the museoness of them because they are you know they're musos in a david hetworth interview in smash hits earlier in 1980 the band are, are usually taciturn about their past they don't want to reveal what sessions they've worked on and stuff which is odd because now you know session work would be a calling card almost yeah um although they do admit the buggles connection <laughs> hetworth ends up taking against them precisely because of their doominess and their professionalism. And there's also a review in the Sounds issue that we were talking about, um, a review of the album by Betty Page. She loves it, mm. and she, but, but she has to get over an awful lot of stuff in the first few paragraphs, you know. Right. Don't hate them because they want to get in the charts. Don't hate them because they're musicians. And, and like Simon says, visually... <laughs> they're not exactly captivating here. No. Tony Mansfield, clearly the main guy here. And he and the drummer play it pretty straight. The bass player just has this kind of shit-eating grin on. Mm. And the keyboard player is just a total dick. The band do suffer from overperformative keyboard player. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. He's kind of jumping around, not touching the keyboard. Loads of wacky, zany, you might even say, mm. expressions. Lots of swimming motions. Yeah, yeah, that as well. I mean, as it is, this slightly sort of, what, smug conflation of prog and pop played by super competent, dull-looking people. In a weird way, it's oddly premonescent of both what current indie pop sounds like and also how Howard Jones et al. would come and sort of spoil new pop with their competence in a few years. Mm. Um, and it's very revealing how even the keyboardists' wackyisms which I think might be a response to previous criticism of him and the previous appearance um, on telly just being boring and uh, in his pocket. Right. Yeah? So he's being deliberately wacky. You know, they can't stop uh. the audience looking away from the band and backwards. <laughs> and, and, and yet and yet, 
I haven't stopped singing this song all week. It's catchy as fuck. Me neither. You know? And, and what Simon said about the album means that I must investigate it. I mean, it's good when pop theories fall apart. Um, I sort of came to this thing, oh, what a bunch of musos, this isn't going to work. But no, it really does work. Mm. Um, I have in my hand a sealed envelope like Darren Brown, and I'm going to rip it open now. Hang on. <laughs> and uh, inside the envelope, there's a folded piece of paper. Hang on. <laughs> and uh, on that piece of paper, I have written "Shaking Buggles" slash yes! "Shaking oh, Trevor Horn." Right? Yes. Because I reckoned, I reckoned, if I didn't say that, one of you was gonna. And uh, yes, that was the next thing I was gonna uh, say. So, so Neil mentioned the Buggles, and I, yeah, I predicted you probably would. Because new music had a similar vibe to the yes. Buggles on "Video Killed the Radio Star." In both cases. It's people heralding the new age who were a little bit too old to truly be mm. part of it. Mm. Trevor Horn was 30. Tony Mansfield was 25, which isn't that old, but he looks older. Um, he's a bit of a Martin oh, out of Brotherhood of Man, isn't Brotherhood he? Brotherhood of Man, yeah. But for comparison, Steve Strange, who was genuinely part of this new age, this coming age, mm. was 20. And those five years made yes. a massive difference. But in terms of, you know, shaking Buggles, shaking Trevor Horn, Tony Mansfield wasn't that far behind Trevor Horn in terms of quality. Mm. My favourite productions of his are two non-hits, actually. Um, Aztec Camera, Walk Out to Winter, and Vicious pink can't you see right but his mortgage and his pension would probably have been paid by aha take on me and captain sensible happy mm. talk yes so go on now what, what were you going to say about the whole buggles bit well i was going to say that they were uncharitably seen at the time as shaking buggles and there are similarities but to my mind new music are miles better than the buggles well can i just clarify i, mean, I was under the impression that phil towner did play drums on video kill the radio star oh that's Ooh. interesting tony mansfield put this band together it's a kind of confection in a way he was doing everything but he wanted to yes. get out of the studio wanted to start playing live and making appearances because he wanted to get in the charts and hired these people phil towner i think was a session guy but he did play drums on video killed the radio star and he's also the drummer here and he's up front do you notice mm. this yeah and yeah. not for the last time in this episode having a drummer up front yes it's a bit of a running theme in this episode i remember when the jam stuck rick buckler up front for their final mm. ever top of the pops mm. appearance with beat surrender um, it was a big deal everyone talked about it at the time but only three years earlier every fucker was doing it it turns out yeah oh yeah you mentioned the keyboardist he is acting up mm too much isn't he yeah. fucking gurning and mugging and prancing about he fancies himself as a bit of a new Rick Wakeman I think Ooh. but the thing is I think I might have enjoyed it at the time because yeah, I was yeah. a child yeah. um, much, much as it pisses me off now um, unlike the song which you know loved it then love it now another thing that I noticed um, and I, I sort of alluded to this when we were talking about the Robin Nash era that there are a lot of special effects in this episode yes. and also visual effects um, but the SFX start right here with actual water yes running down a pane of glass through which a camera sees everything. Yeah, the blue screened it, haven't they? Because it shows up on their white suits. The band are all yeah. wearing white suits, really cheap-looking mm. white suits with pink shirts. And, yes, the blue screened them, as was the style back then. And it's hard to know if that's deliberate, you know, if, if, if they knew that the little raindrops are going to show up on the clothing or if it's a happy accident mm. but it looks really cool I yes. think even the uh, bird of paradise flower yes. on the keyboard uh, is a nice touch because that references the sleeve of Indeed. from A to B maybe the band brought it with them but I like to imagine that you know a junior BBC runner was sent out to dash around all the florists in the shepherd's <laughs> bush area to find one but yeah good start yeah strong so the following week this world of water jumped seven places to number 31 but the the week after that, it dropped one place to number 32. 
The follow-up, Sanctuary, also got to number 31 for two non-consecutive weeks in late July, early August of this year. And although they released two more LPs and five more singles, none of them came anywhere near the chart and they split up in 1982. As mentioned in an earlier episode of Chart Music, Tony Mansfield buried his head into the operating manual of the Fairlight CMI and ended up behind the keyboards or whatever instead of faders for the likes of Captain Sensible, the B-52s, After the Fire, Vicious Pink and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Oh, and Aha, of course. But yeah, that says it all, doesn't it? You know, Trevor Horn produced Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Tony Mansfield produced a relaxed cover by Captain Sensible. Here's a new single by a man who started in America as a jazz drummer. Believe it or not, he's turned his arts in that way into really good disco music. Narada Michael Walden and the song called I Should Have Loved You. We're hit with a close-up of Vance under some green spotlights on his own as he tells us of his relief that he didn't spoil his Top of the Pops debut by drowning during the first performance. Then he tells us about a jazz drummer who turned his arts in that way into some really good disco music. It's I Shoulda Loved Ya by Narada Michael Walden. Or oh, as he says it, I should have loved you. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a really weird intonation. It's like when the bloke from Cheap Trick says, I want you to want me at the start of that live single. You know, mm. He did tell an awful joke in that preamble as well. Just, just for a moment, he goes, I thought I was going to drown there, but mm. luckily I haven't. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he reads it with all the conviction of your auntie reading out the joke from a Christmas cracker when she's left to buy vocals at home. <laughs> We've already covered NMW in chart music number 53 when he took Divine Emotions to number 8 in May of 1988 but this single from the former drummer of the Mahavishnu Orchestra is the follow-up to Tonight I'm Alright which got to number 34 in March of this year. It's the second cut from his fourth solo LP, The Dance of Life, which came out in America last year, and it got to number four in the US R&B chart in late 1979. It entered the chart last week at number 35, and this week it soared 16 places to number 19. He's currently in America working on his next LP, so here's a clip from his appearance in Soul Train last year. And oh, chaps... Any chance to see Soul Train on top of the pops is always welcome, isn't it? Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Although, I mean, the actual amount of audience we get is kind of heartrendingly brief, really. Mm. Let's go back to that Smash Hits article by Tony Parsons, everyone, because he had a word or two to say about Soul Train. All right. Top of the Pops should be moving towards where Soul Train, a show for black music in America, is already. It's slick, 
polished and sharp. The live acts are good and the young people dancing in the studio don't look like they're supervised or herded around like cattle so they don't get in the way of camera three or so that Ken Dodd's got an audience. They look as though they're having a good time and they act like the programme belongs to them. Top of the Pops heading in this direction would be the promise of perfection. A multiracial pop slot. He does go on to mention that Top of the Pops is currently the only place that you can see black musicians on British television at the moment. So yeah, fucking hell. Two for two, Tony Parsons. What's going on? <laughs> He's right uh, in the, um, the the zoo wankers on Soul Train aren't wankers. They can actually no. dance. Mm. Yes. There's people up on the podiums. Yeah. And it is it is quite exotic and exciting to see this clip of America. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the point. I mean, we are Britain. We can't have nice things. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was never going to, I understand where he's coming from, but it was never going to happen because, I mean, of course, the kids in the Top of the Pop studio every week have watched Top of the Pops all their life and they know what you do. You go and you watch what's on stage rather than dance with each other. Yes, get out of the way of the cameras. Indeed. Channel 4 in a few years' time had a go at doing their own Soul Train presented by Jeffrey Daniel and it just didn't work. Mm. Yeah. But I always wonder with Soul Train, what, what was the vetting procedure for being in the audience? Because they look so fucking cool dancing to this record and it's just, they all all look cool. Yeah, um, it can't just be randoms off the street. There must yeah, have been yeah, a bit of a yeah, sort of yeah. Studio 54 situation. Trawling the clubs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, everything on Soul Train is the complete opposite to Top of the Pops in 1980. Everything's bright and open. Mm. There's a wide stage. There's a huge studio. There's loads of lights on both band and audience. And basically loads of space for everyone to dance and cavort and put themselves over. Yeah, and colour and light and not that yeah. oppressive dankness you get from uh, mm. Top of the Pops. Yeah, I mean, everyone on it um particularly in this clip just looks like they're having the best time and yes and it is infectious i mean when this song came on when i was watching this episode i was just like fucking yes mm. yeah it was just one of those moments occasionally when we're doing chart music you're watching the totp in question and just a song comes on and you're like fucking brilliant um i think uh you know you guys uh, neil and sarah had that with dead ringer for love mm. yes and i kind of had a little taste of that with this i really did Ooh. it just really gave me a lift you know um mm. i know previously on chart music 53 when we talked about um narada yes uh, i i sort of disparaged semi-disparagingly sort of described him as shaking jacko and a pound land nile rogers which mm. is more to do with kind of how i perceived him at the time because i didn't really yes. know much about him yeah but he he is obviously just fucking phenomenal uh, i don't think i even knew when i was a kid that he was a drummer a singing drummer because i didn't see this episode at the time mm. I, I just thought he was you know a, a singing guy but this this record it's just a fucking banger isn't it yeah I mean, when we saw him on that episode in Top of the Pops in 1988, him and his live youthful mates were going about in baseball caps and black spandex like they were in Janet Jackson's step class. But here it's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 80s haven't really arrived for this band just yet, have they? <laughs> but but in a good way, you yes. know, the band just look extraordinary. Yes, the, the, guy, the guy I was obsessed with is a sax player, right? Mm. Who is basically, as far as I'm concerned, he is the pee-poo of, of the whole Narada <laughs> Michael Walden setup. He looks like the leather man from the village people yes. who has borrowed Farrah Fawcett Major's hair. Yes. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And he's got these sort of silk trousers like one of Charlie's Angels. Oh. He's Mark Russo 
of the Sea America Horns, mm. and yeah. uh, uh, he he was in the jazz fusion band the Yellow Jackets for a while, and he played on uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston, which of course was an Arada uh, production. Uh, these days he he tours with the Doobie Brothers. No, and no surprise there. You just look at him; he looks like one of the fucking Doobie Brothers and Chicago. Mm. But when it just came on, I thought, fucking brilliant! What a seventies looking man in the best possible yeah. way. What a oh, moustache! Yeah. Fucking what hell. a yeah. tash! What a tash! He's this weird combo of kind of Obelix from the Asterix comic. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. And he's got these yes. y- sort of yacht rock clothes on with this big porn star tash. The kind of face, really, that you only see on ogres in children's illustrated bibles. <laughs> but he's really compelling. But the whole band is, you know, the trombonist just is Lester from the Wire. Yes. I think, uh, and, and, you yeah. know, and, and the guitarist. Um, also caught my eye. I mean, like Walden, he's dressed yeah. like a kind of sleazy Sesame Street presenter. But um, <laughs> for me, uh, I couldn't take my eyes off the bassist because he's just doing the greatest bass face ever. Yes. He, he's constantly in that moment when things are going so funky. He's practically <laughs> kind of wincing himself inside out, starting his arsehole. You know? He's a chunky fucker as well, isn't he? He is a chunky fucker. Uh, you, know, you know how BDSM folk talk about like exquisite tenderness, that moment of the most intense pain and pleasure? The mm. bassist here, he, yeah, he's just in this constant paroxysm of exquisite funkiness, whereby his face, his face can't quite believe how funky things are getting. <laughs> um, it's like, he's constantly, oh God, that's too much. Why can't I stop being this funky? I love that guy. Yeah. I love him more than Walden, to be fair. I mean, mm. I've always got a thing from Walden. He seems a bit smug. I, I've been reading kind of contemporary interviews with him from the 80s. And beyond his fitness regime, and because he's barrel-chested, isn't he? He's a very yeah. hench guy, yeah. and his nauseating dips into why uh, you know wily Eastern mysticism via that bullshit pedestrian yeah. chimney. Who also, of course, yeah, yeah, got yeah. to Santana and John McLaughlin and Roberta Flack. There were some quite telling quotes. I mean, he's he's a, a little snotty. Abbott. He says he doesn't want to make shake your booty music, but um, this is precisely what this is. What's wrong with that? I know he's also slightly frustrated. I read in one interview that he's not been entirely accepted by black music fans which he feels is holding him back and when he finally wins a grammy he says um you know i've been great for ages this is long overdue <laughs> but then he explains that he goes you know what people see is arrogance is really love power man i love the world and i i, I love myself so it's odd where now people use their narratives of sob stories or identity to justify being arrogant about their achievements back then you just needed some uh, some Deepak Chopra-style bullshit merchant to talk to you about self-actualization to, to justify mm. it. There's something a bit glassy-eyed about it, but yeah, this is a great slice of kind of fusion disco. Oddly behind the times, there's no kind of... Because thinking about what Herbie Hancock's doing in this period, you know, he's bringing in a lot of synths. Mm. But mm. again, another great... It's not the starter, but just seeing a bit of Soul Train and just focusing on that bassist face um, was wonderful. Going back to your sax, man, I mean, they're not at the level of honker in the previous episode, but he's got a generous flair in them white trousers. Oh, yeah. And can I introduce another word to the lexicon of Saxons? Please. Amtabs. Amtabs. Uh-huh. My Asian mate, um, when he was growing up in the 80s, Amtabs was the word used for a massive pair of white flares. <laughs> After the actor Amtab. Yeah, of course, of course. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You hear his mate going, oh, char guy, your uncle was wearing some bad Amtabs at that wedding guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you wow. go, Amtabs, welcome into the lexicon of Saxons. Excellent. Mm. I don't think we dwelt enough on the guitarist, actually. 
Right. No, because he's got one of them double neck jobs and he only bothers with one. Yeah. I always hated seeing that. If you've got a double neck guitar, you play both of them. Yeah, it's like it's Jimmy Page style, isn't it? It's got a 12 string and a 6 string uh, on the yes. same guitar. But you say he only bothers with one of them. Some of the time he's not even doing that. He's just like giving the overhead hand claps, you know? Right. Yeah. So he's Corrado Pat Rustici. And uh, the only Corrado I've come across other than him uh, is Corrado Soprano, aka Uncle Junior, these motherless fucks. Um, so. Yeah, but he is a genuine Italian. Uh, he also played on Whitney stuff like How Will I Know. He played on We Don't Have To by Jermaine Stewart. Um, right. Again, like basically, it seems that anything that Narada did, he brought half his band with him. Mm. But Rustici was a prog musician, um, which you can tell from the fucking instrument he's holding. Yes. And it turns out, um, uh, th- this shows how prog he is. Last year, he brought out an album called Interfulgent. Um, in- <laughs> Interfulgent is an adjective which is used to describe light shining through the gaps between objects, such as clouds or leaves. Interfulgent. Mm. Yeah, very prog. Um, <laughs> Neil mentioned uh, somebody looking like they were on Sesame mm. Street. Um, I thought Narada himself, he's got this yellow shirt and red braces. Yes. He looks like he should be presenting Playaway. <laughs> but somehow he can carry it off, I think. Yeah, and there's a female singer with a big handful of seashells in her hair. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. I think he was ahead of his time, Narada, also in terms of recycling, because he did recycle this on Jump to the Beat by Stacey Lattisor, which oh, in many, yeah. many ways is the same song. And even Tonight I'm Alright, his, his, uh, his other song is very similar to that. There's also a kind of, um, I should have loved you, Shalimar, there it is, and Orange Juice, rip it up, continuum. Oh. Those same two chords over and over. But fuck it, it works. If it works, don't, you know, if mm-hmm. it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't push it, don't force don't it. Don't push it, don't force it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the way, Al, you know, you were saying about the double neck guitars you don't like them when they're not being used to their full capability you must seek out um this is much later in the 80s but a song called freight train by a band called nitro um yeah because the guitarist for them jean-michel what's his name yeah jean-michel batio at one point right it goes to the goes to the solo and this four-necked guitar Ooh. <laughs> comes down like on a winch. Fuck me. It's like four necks Fucking pointing out. in different... Yeah, it's like a cross. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, no. All no. Different directions. And he starts playing all four necks in a completely... Stu- but Freight Train by Nitro is just one of the insanest daft poodle rock videos of the 80s. Fuck. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want some, d- not double neck, but quadruple neck action, mm. that's where to go. And I do. <laughs> I feel like that's somebody's logo. It's on the tip of my brain. Um, a guitar with um, with with the fretboards pointing out in four different directions. Who is it? Maybe the pop crazy youngsters. The Nazis. Yeah. yeah, the Nazis. Exactly. <laughs> but I I sense that um, that you two didn't get quite the same rush from this song that I did. But I, you know, I really did. It's just no, a fucking... I like this. Yeah, I like this. But it's yeah. just one of many songs this year yeah. that are in that kind of uh, in that kind of pocket, if you will. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's another one. Great, brilliant. I guess so. I wasn't anti this kind of music at all. If it was on, I'd listen to it. Hmm. It was only a bit later on that I realised. Oh, I should have loved that. Hey. But yeah, f- for me, this song and this performance is just a fucking heady nostril full of f- fucking fairy dust, to quote the trogs. It really <laughs> is. Uh, of course, the, the, the maddest thing about Narada, we mentioned it before, he joined Journey in 2020. I think that's a bit yes. beneath him, man. But, um, yeah, but I, I also so. tracked down an interview with him from about 10, 12 years ago, uh, where he was talking about 
the fact that uh, people don't really buy albums anymore and that the only way to make money is is by performing live and uh, he said god's given me a gift that if it doesn't work in a studio it'll work on a stage so i don't have to shine shoes that's what he said but I, i'd have thought he's probably not hard up for a few quid do you know what i mean well, quite. Like all those Whitney records, Jesus. So the following week, I should have loved you, went boing, 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 <laughs> all the way up to number 11. And the week after that, it got to number eight, its highest position. The follow-up, The Real Thang, failed to chart over here, and he'd have to wait eight long years before returning with divine emotions. That's Nirvana Michael Walden. That's number 19 in the charts at the moment. It's called I Should Have Loved You. Who's a lucky boy then? Here's the chords and something called, well, you've got it. Here it is. Sat on a very wide sofa, suddenly finds himself flanked by four girls with lank, flicked back hair. Who's a lucky boy then, he says, into the head of the girl on his left. What is going on with that bit on the sofa? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, beyond anything else, it, it, it makes you think there was some sort of process whereby those girls were decided upon. Mm. to be part of that and it's just grisly isn't it yeah I don't know if it's meant to be somehow sexy and you know again like I say people in glass houses but they are four quite frumpy young women and mm. you know he's got his arm around one of them because those are the rules you know if you're the top of the pops presenter you've got to have your arm yeah. around well he, he's got his arm around the back of the sofa isn't he he's not, well, he's not actually oh yeah but in that. that way when you're at the cinema he sort of yawns yes, <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, but the sofa itself is a bit of Chekhovian foreshadowing we're going to see that Indeed. sofa in use quite soon that poor woman she's probably in therapy now that whole like <laughs> who's a lucky boy then Fuck yeah, yeah. i don't know about you chaps but if i was sat at a bus stop and four girls of that age sat either side of me the first thing that's going to come into my head isn't going to be always oh, a stroke of luck then <laughs> you know because nothing good can come out of this situation yeah. and i'd be sitting there praying for the bus to come and just hoping that no one who knows me walks by and notices me i'd be sat there with a fucking carrier bag over my face like Ian McGregor. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Out. He then attempts to introduce the next single and fucks it up somewhat. <laughs> it's Something's Missing by The Chords. Formed in London in 1977 by Billy Hassett and Martin Mason, two cousins who were Who and Beatles obsessives, the Action were a loose collective who played youth clubs until they put an advert in The Enemy in early 1978 and acquired Chris Pope, a guitarist and songwriter. In 1978, they found out that there'd already been a mod band called The Action, so they changed their name to The Chords. They sent a demo tape to The Who, who were looking for bands to appear in the film version of Quadrophenia, and heard nothing back. So they placed another advert, this time in Melody Maker, for a Keith Moon-type drummer, resulting in Buddy Haskett joining the band. 
In March of 1979, the Chords played their first gig in a pub in Deptford and immediately attracted a following amongst the burgeoning mod revival movement. And a month later, in a pub gig in Waterloo, they were watched by Paul Weller and a few people from Polydor. And before the week was out, they were recording a demo for JP Records, the Polydor offshoot run by Jimmy Purser of Skinheads on Magic 69. <laughs> A month later, the enemy introduced the mod revival to the general public in a special mod-themed issue which listed the chords alongside the likes of Secret Affair and the Purple Hearts as the new breed. A month after that, the band not only signed a deal with JP Records and had a debut single in the can, but found themselves supporting the jam at the Rainbow and then bagged a support slot with the Undertones, who they immediately bonded with. However, the band immediately started making that Marge Simpson noise when Percy started pushing them fully towards the mod revival. (laughs) And when he turned up at their gig at Guildford Civic Hall with his new mates Steve Jones and Paul Cook and a gang of about 40 skinheads, he demanded that they join the undertones on stage for an encore, then bum-rushed the stage and took over, nearly killing undertones bassist Mickey Bradley when a lighting tower collapsed and the band demanded to be freed from their ties with Perse. Back at square one and standing by while the Merton Parkers recorded the first mod revival single, their career was back on where they did a peel session a couple of months later, sparking managerial approaches from the managers of Sham, The Undertones and Paul Weller's dad and a label bidding war which ended when they signed to Polydor properly. Their debut single, Now It's Gone, was put out in September of 1979 and only got to number 63, but their first single of 1980, Maybe Tomorrow, made single of the week in sounds, NME, and on Kid Jensen's Radio 1 show, and when it got to number 44 in February, they made their debut on Top of the Pops, which kicked the single up to number 40, but no further. This single, the follow-up, is taken from their new and first LP, So Far Away, which comes out in a fortnight. It entered the chart last week at number 73, and this week it's jumped 16 places to number 57, but no matter, here they are in the studio. That introduction by Tommy, oh dear. Here's the chords and something called, well, you've got it, here it is. <laughs> Was he supposed to pause at some point? You know, here's something called, uh, you see, something's missing. Oh, right. Do you know I what I mean? I think so, yes. Oh, yes. But it's only yes. at number 57 in the charts. A fraction of the audience would have known what the song is. Yeah, he's fluffed that one, hasn't he? Mm. Badly. I mean, I have the feeling, chaps, that this song may have something to do with their debut performance on Top of the Pops last February, because according to the sleeve notes for the compilation CD, The Mod Singles Collection, written by Chris Hunt, quote... The following night, after their Top of the Pops session, the group were in the northwest of England for a gig just outside Chesterfield. They watched their Top of the Pops performance with animated enthusiasm in the TV room of their hotel, but their behaviour alienated the locals in the small, family-run establishment. In the early hours of the morning, they found themselves evicted following a visit from the police who arrested one of the road crew on drugs charges. 
For Billy Hassett, success wasn't proving to be quite what he expected. We were looking at ourselves on top of the pops and then looking round and saying, that's not our life, it's completely different. On TV we look like stars, but off it we were in this terrible (laughs) B&B. The feeling of disillusionment permeates this song, doesn't it? They seem angry about something, but, you know, you mm. look through the lyrics and, you know, something's missing. They're saying, what? You know, it's it, they never quite get to the point. It's like, in the city, they fuck all they want to say to you, basically. Mm. <laughs> they're perhaps, I mean, I'm not saying they're saying something's missing in the mod revival, but they are, in a sense, trying to distance themselves from it a little bit, I yes. think, with, the, with their appearance here. Yeah. The lead singer, he's wearing this kind of sort of punky leopard print furry jacket yeah he looks well generation x doesn't he yeah i mean that's certainly not mod revival um and the drummer's wearing an elvis t-shirt you'd assume wouldn't you that that's not very mod but it's actually based on a badge that keith moon was wearing on his white denim Uh, jacket i see i mean visually in terms of the way they move that is this is massively in hot to the jab and the who but Sonically, it's more of a Buzzcocks undertones thing, which I actually don't mind. I mean, the difference is that this song, I think it's attempting to be anthemic in a way that those two bands weren't. Both the undertones and especially the Buzzcocks still felt like music that was kind of written in a bedroom and was, Mm. you know, the size of Pete Shelley's life, ultimately. Whereas this Mm. feels ambitious in a big way and you know i mean you know i hate the who and i feel their influence is 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 mainly a malign one so Mm -hmm. i've always got a bit of a problem with mod revival and in as much as it seems like a revival of something that wasn't really mod in the first place you know Mm -hmm. were the who and the small faces mods or just rock bands that exploited the look of that subculture pretty Mm -hmm. soon what would actually (laughs) sort of make sense much more as a, mo- a revival of mod ideas, two-tone is going to make all of this seem quite dated and parochial. Mm. I mean, they're not helped also by putting the bassist at the front of the stage. Like Simon said, there's a lot of front-of-the-stage stuff in this episode. Yeah, He looks like he's come halfway through the stage in some kind of malfunctioning trapdoor. He just looks really short. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I didn't mind this, but it kind of reminded me of... Remember the 90s? There were a lot of also-ran... Britpop bands, <laughs> if you like, or a lot of also ran bands. Like, I mean, uh, uh, most of which I've never heard. You know, Game I mean, names, I, Neil, come on. Oh God, well, I don't know what Thousand Yard Stare or Kingmaker or Sixty Foot Doll sound like. I wrongly <laughs> think they sound like this. Well, there's a whole compilation that's just come out of Junk Shop Britpop. God, I saw that. Yeah, yeah it's all oh, bands six like CDs, Jocasta yeah. or something. Who I, I can't remember what they sounded like, but yeah, I know what you mean all these kind of like. Camden Parkway, good mixer kind of bands that you never actually heard, you just heard their name. That's it. And in the noughties, when the chords reform and go on tour again, I've read an interview where one of them says, yeah, it's because, you know, Noel Gallagher said that he really liked the chords. I mean, I'm not, I'm not using that as a, a stick to beat them with, <laughs> but I am sort of actually, but, um, you know, I like the song, but it, but it, it, it seems big and ambitious and a bit too who flavoured for my taste. This appears to be a, a, a prime example of a band to immediately get lumped into a movement in this mm. case, the mod revival. And, you know, they are mod adjacent, but they're not the Lambrettas. Yeah, well, this is what confused me when I saw this clip, because, you know, I assumed that they were ultra-generic mod. And as Neil's pointed out, Billy Hassett, the singer, doesn't look very mod at all. He's got very uncool no. 
sort of feathery hair. Um, he looks mm. like he might as well... Yeah, a bit cooler shaker, oh, isn't it? I thought yeah. he, he just looks like, you know, a member of Racy or something. And, um, yeah. and, and yeah, yeah, that that leopard jacket that he's wearing, it's as if the Harrington was designed by Julie Goodyear. <laughs> and, and, um, and the drummer, not only the Elvis thing, I don't know if you notice, he's wearing a backwards baseball hat. Mm. Yes, he is. Fucking yes. hell. Um, mm. I will say that the guitarist had some nice kind of pop art graphics on his guitar, which I liked. Yeah. And I think it's the bassist who's up front does have that kind of mod Julius Caesar haircut. So there were mm. elements of mods in the way they present themselves. And, but there, there was mm. some other stuff going on, which kind of threw me a little bit. And they do sound quite sham, funnily enough, I thought. Yes. You know, it, it is sort of the dregs of punk rather than, yeah. rather than mods, mm. I thought. Yeah. But the mod revival anyway was... I mean, it was fucking shit, man. It was mm-hmm. it was worse than OG sixties mod, except for the jam. Like the jam, obviously, at this kind of peak of the whole thing. But once you mm. fall off that peak, it's a long way down. Yes. Possibly you hit Secret Affair halfway down, who are okay. But then yes. it's a long fucking drop to the bottom. Mm. Just recently, I was listening to some eighties playlists or other, and um, and the truth came on there with confusion hits us every oh, yes. time. Utter fucking dog shit. Really, mm. it's worse than I remembered it being. So I, I don't feel quite as kind of conciliatory towards <laughs> this band or, or, or this performance as you do. But I noticed something about this which backs up my idea that Robin Nash was was throwing some either some money or some ideas or both at this because the backdrop behind yes. the cause, these massive arrows, massive fucking mod arrows made of perspex or whatever, that can't yeah, be cheap. Nice, isn't it? Yeah, that could not have been cheap either. I mean, it makes you wonder which other the bands who played spiky pop would have been lumped into the mod revival if they hadn't come out as early as they had i mean the undertones for example yeah and you've got bands like like the vapors and the jags mm. who are kind of on the edge of it really as well mm. yeah but the thing is with the chords they, they do that moment though where you just your heart sinks where he does the townsend windmill <laughs> uh, on his guitars and it's pretending it it's it's play acting mm. i didn't mind the song but yeah the, the mod stuff leave it out one thing i found quite funny was when the camera pans across the backs of the heads of the audience because i don't know if you noticed yes. loads of woolly hats loads of woolly hats in the audience which tells us what's coming later. Yeah, either that or the flumps <laughs> are in the studio next door and they're on a break. I don't know. Anyway, this single, I bought it. Silence. Explain yourself. I bought Explain this on, on the following Saturday with my birthday. Oh, me. I just thought, well, I'm into the jam now. This is a bit jammy, and they're on the back page of the new Smash Hits in their new Fred Perry jumpers. Yeah, I'll have some of that. Yeah. Only played it a few times. I think it lasted mm. about two weeks on my turntable, which was a very short time for a 12 year old's record collection. I like the B-side, that the Tiz Was influenced instrumental, This Is What They Want. Wow. <laughs> But I think this is where the mod revival fell down because people like you would have been lured on board by the jam and you would have been looking mm. around thinking, well, what else is there? Yes. And when you find what else is there, it's really not very good. And this yeah. is why the revival kind of fizzled out, really. Yeah, you're right, Simon. Top of the Props have done them proud with a, a massive arrow backdrop, but the effect that they're going for is ruined at the end with a wide shot where we can see Tommy Vance standing on the race yeah. platform with his head bowed, <laughs> looking as if he's about to throw himself off it for being yeah. listening to mod he rubbish. Really, he looks really solemn, doesn't he? Yes, he really does. <laughs> so the following week, despite me buying 
playing it. Something's missing, <laughs> nudged up a mere two places to number 55, then dropped right out of the chart the next week. The follow-up, British Way of Life, only got to number 54 in July, and after they rounded off 1980 with In My Street only getting to number 50 in October, lead singer Billy Hassett was sacked. Although they limped on through the first half of 1981, their next two singles also fell to chart and they called it a day in September of that year. Of course, absolutely nothing was, and nothing ever is when it's legs and company, especially when they're in there. Vance on that platform tells us what the song was called and then insists that nothing's missing on top of the pops, especially the crumpet. And here they are, ready to get down to the groove by Rodney Franklin. Born in Berkeley, California in 1958, Rodney Franklin started playing jazz piano from the age of six and by the age of 14 was leading a jazz funk band called In One Piece. In 1978, he signed a deal with CBS and this tune, the follow-up to I Like the Music Make It Hot, which fell to chart in 1978, is the lead-off single from his second LP, You'll Never Know, which came out earlier this year. Although it received little to no radio airplay, it was picked up on by the club scene of the southeast, particularly by the DJ Chris Hill, who inaugurated the swing revival of the mid-70s, gave the world the singles Renta Santa and Bionic Santa, and was an instrumental figure in the rise of Brit-funk. And it was he who popularised and encouraged a dance where the jazz-funk crazed youngsters would stand stock-still during the silent bits in the song called The Freeze. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 70, then soared 43 places to number 27, which earned it the honour of being the chart rundown music on top of the pops last week. And this week it's moved up six places to number 13. Better call Legs and Company, to use Vance's term. What do we talk about first, chaps? The song or the performance? Song, just because, you know, then we can move on to the... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the, the, To the the good bit. Yeah, the good bit. Yeah. yeah, it's well fucking teletext, isn't it, this? It sounds also, I mean, obscure, defunct console chat, but it sounds uncannily like the music from tennis on Wii Sports. I just wanted Ooh, to say that. Oh, yes. It's very similar. I love this. Um, oh. I, I bought it at the time, which... Uh, did might you? Seem, yeah, I did. Uh, it might seem strange for a 12-year-old. What but, a sophisticated um, young man you were. Simon. Well, this is the yeah. thing. I think I've mentioned this before, that um, there are a few things I bought around this time that are oddly mature, uh, including um, After the Lover's Gone by Earth, Wind & Fire mm. and When Will You Be Mine by Average White Band. So mm. I was clearly up for a bit of this kind of jazz-funk mm. fusion stuff. Mm. Simon Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, if, if we were on a, on a Zoom call right now, I could show you that I'm wearing white socks as we speak. I genuinely am. Um, so, so um, yeah, um, I think partly it might have been to do with the fact that the, the evil Stalag boarding school that I was in had a piano. And right. I wasn't having lessons, but I was sort of mucking about on it, thinking maybe I would like to learn. And, and I, I ended up 
having lessons when I got back to Wales. Um, and this sounded like something that would be just mind-blowing to sit down and play this. Mm. It's all about those stops, those interruptions, those caesure that happen mm. in the song, uh, which I guess are, are what helps sort of lends itself to, to this dance craze, the freeze that you you talked about. Do mm. we know, by the way, is that the freeze that, that freeze we're referring to in the song Southern Freeze? Yeah, that came out in early 1981, didn't mm. it? Yeah, so maybe it's the same dance. You know, and I'm not sure if it's the same as voguing that Madonna tried to make happen. But anyway, yeah. I remember that um, the, the cutout record sleeve that it came in was very shiny black, shiny black paper, almost like PVC, which I thought was kind of cool and kind of sophisticated at the time. Mm. The thing that I've learned researching this that, that blew my mind is that Rodney Franklin was 21 when he made this, mm. which is insane. To be that good at the piano, how do you get to be that good at the Ooh. age of 21? I don't know. I certainly wasn't. I packed it in by the time I was about 15. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but yeah, my main focus was was on what I was watching. Um, mm, indeed, yes. Let's get this out of the way first. I feel so guilty that we're doing this without Taylor because this entire tableau is, is a, it's an Aventis wet dream, isn't it? <laughs> the set appears to be Martin Shaw's bachelor pad. And for the dad, watching this he can just sit back and imagine that he's managed to cop off with all of legs and co at once (laughs) and they're slinking about in his living room in their pants and 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 some of his flouncier shirts it's got that vibe of you know new girlfriend or she puts your shirt on and slinks around the house in it which is really good for a few days but then you start thinking oh i've got to fucking wash that shirt again now thanks It is indecent, you know, this. It's yeah. indecent. At one point, I mean, I had to loosen my collar to let a jet of steam out. It's as rude Indeed. as a hot gossip routine. Uh, I would probably have left the room uh, at the time. <laughs> and, you know, it is, yeah. Like you say, it, it, it's Bodie and Doyle's living room, isn't it, that, that they're basically in. It's missing a yeah. few things, though. Well, it's a very minimalist living room, isn't mm. it? I mean, all there appears to be is a stupidly long and massively snaky sofa. And I have to say that as a child who had just turned 12, mm. my reaction to this on the night would have been less, what order am I going to give Legs and Co a scene to, and more, fucking hell, look at that sofa. Imagine the bicycle kicks and somersaults I could do on that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah oh, it's yeah. it's an extraordinary sofa. It is sort of snaky and curved, but um, it's broken up into segments like a bender in a bun at Wimpy. Mm, yes. <laughs> it looks like it belongs in the house in A Clockwork Orange. Yes. And yeah, they, they are making the the most of that sofa, aren't they? They're oh, rolling yeah. over yeah. backwards over the sofa, taking turns. There's I don't know if you know, there's, there's a clash of heads at one point. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, 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 they, yeah. Um, if, if it was football, they'd be taken off now as a precaution against concussion. Yes. But maybe... Yeah. Maybe their fluffy crimped hair softened the impact. I don't know. Oh, God, yes. There's also a bit where there's a few of them uh, behind the sofa and they're bouncing up and down like, like they're on a Sibian, you know, mm. with, uh, yes. mm. with with ecstatic <laughs> smiles on their faces. And then, then there's a bit where they're just down behind the sofa entirely, but just putting their hands up and waving like a fucking puppet show. Or, yeah. or, would it have been brilliant yeah. if they had sooty and sweep on each other? <laughs> at the end? That would have been perfect. <laughs> I mean, it is a thorough exploration of everything you can possibly do on a sofa. And, yes. And over the years, I'm fairly sure I've achieved a lot of these positions on a sofa <laughs> in one way or another. Quite new. I mean, uh, I would have liked a little bit of verite realism for the dawning of the 80s, you know, a few crisp crumbs on there, Daily Mirror TV <laughs> listings, <laughs> yeah. some pens, a few coins, scrunched up Grundies, etc. Actually, you know, though it, this did give me some dadisfaction, um, it also gave me some, what, daddy's disappointment as well. I was appalled 
when one of them, yeah, started jumping up and down on it with her shoes on. Yes. Oh. Disgraceful yes. scenes to be putting uh, yeah, in. Yeah, my mum wouldn't have approved of that. Would have been nice. Coffee table, maybe. Tartan ice bucket. Yes. <laughs> this is 1980, so it's not the 70s, so that pineapple-shaped ice bucket would have been jettisoned by now. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I used to sit around my home in the early 80s, I was always uh, wondering what household items I could use as weaponry in the event of a home invasion. <laughs> um <laughs> And there's none of that here. Uh, we had, yeah. you know, I think we mentioned it before, it's an obsession of mine, a, a really heavy martini ashtray. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, a grey one that could have really done some damage and, and caved the head in of the leader of the imagined group of street punks who burst into my house. <laughs> there, there's none of that here. Because, you yeah. know, once you wounded the leader, the pack will retreat. You exactly, know? Attack yeah. Attack is the best form of defence. Yeah, but you've got Legs uh, and Co. using sex as a weapon here. That's all they need. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There should be a, a, a drinks cabinet built into a globe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there needs to be one of them really chunky and just as deadly uh, lighters. Oh, yeah. Just basically a lighter bolted onto a curling stone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Onyx, if you're going to get really classy. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, there needs to be a nice lacquered cigarette box full of um, John Player Special <laughs> and a decanter or two. But, yeah, you're right. It is basically this whole thing is an invitation for the dads in the audience to basically place themselves in that room yeah, and yeah. basically mm. reenact that Snoop Dogg line, I've got bitches in the living room getting it on and they ain't leaving till six <laughs> yeah, in the morning. Six in the you morning. know, that is basically the whole vibe. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to be said, like a lot of Legs and Co. performances round about this time, there's a fucking lot of knickerage on display, oh, yeah. isn't there? Very saucy indeed. There's a standard pose where they kind of like all bend over and show the knickers, uh, which happens on more than one occasion on Top of the Pops, as I've come to discover and not deliberately look for honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's one bit where Rose, with her hair all crimped up, in a style that would dominate the playgrounds in 1981, she bends right over, and then th- there's a bit of a crossfade, and all of a sudden the screen is filled with knickered arse. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> there's also that bit, there's a bit of twerking, in a sense. I mean, pre- pre-twerking mm. twerking, and a, a lot of jiggling about. A lot of proper jiggling as well. I was surprised, you know, some full-on dancehall-style daggering didn't start um, happening. But um, <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten how rude these routines could be, actually. Yes. Yeah. This is one of the rudest ones I've seen, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, there's worse, mate. <laughs> or, or better, depending on your point of view. But yeah, poor old Tommy Vance. He, he was sat there with four lank-haired girls with flick-back yeah. hair and it's what you could have won, Tommy. Yeah, he's, he's not invited to the real party, is he? Bless him. Yeah. Not so lucky now, are you, mate? <laughs> so the following week, the groove jumps six places to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up in the centre failed to chart and he never darkened our charty door ever again. that crumpety note we're gonna step away catch his breath and go again tomorrow for part three of chart music 68 but don't forget if you want the whole of this episode right bloody well now without any rubbish adverts 
you know what you need to do. Get yourself on patreon.com slash chart music and pledge your love to chart music. Oh, the um, the live episode is up there as well. A beautiful souvenir of a beautiful day. Anyway, on behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price, this is Al Needham instructing you to stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. <laughs>